Mark T. Jordan. He's a piano man extraordinaire who's worked with a list of countless of my favorite artists over the years, including Van Morrison, Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, Boss Cax, and Leroy Parnell. The list goes on and on and on. And he also is part of a more recent band called Big Shoes, and we'll get into that uh, in a moment here. But uh, welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Mark. Thank you very much, Andreas. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being here, and uh, I'd like to kick it off with, with Big Shoes, which originated as a Little Feet mm-hmm. tribute band, That's and correct. I've seen you many times at uh, at either Douglas Corner or, or, or Bourbon Street Blues uh-huh. and Boogie Bar, uh-huh. and uh-huh. would you mind telling me a little bit how Big Shoes came about? Yes, well, uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, I think we have to give all credit to Andy Peak our drummer and leader who uh, had the concept about six years ago that, you know, well, as you know, this town is pretty good with after-hours musicians doing tribute bands, you know, the, all the uh, Hemby Brothers and the Eagle Maniacs and 12 Against Nature and all that stuff. Andy's idea was to do a little bit of a different tribute to an obscure band, you know, Little Feet, not a lot of people are aware of their work, uh, but those who are seem to be pretty... Um, enthusiastic about it, you know, die hard. So uh, Andy got the idea together to form a Little Feet band and look for people who were like-minded, you know, who loved that kind of American soup, if you want, uh, and uh, recruited me. And uh, uh, one of the first members of the band was was Tom Rohde, you know, the percussionist. Yeah. And... Um, I think each of us in his own way, every night before we go out, we just let Tom come through, you know, and let and, and we think about him for a second because he was uh, he's such a wonderful man and to lose him, you know, was, was terrible. Did he pass before you guys started performing or we, did he? Yes, he but did. Yes, he did. But <laughs> typical of Tom is he said, I've got this guy, I know a friend of mine down in Muscle Shoals who might be interested in coming up for this because he'd be perfect for it. And it was Will McFarlane, right? Um, and Will did come up for it, and Will is in the band to this day. And, and the beautiful corollary to that is that, as you know, Will was involved with Bonnie's uh, Raid's band for many years, and I was involved with Bonnie on a couple of recordings, and she covered a couple of my songs. But we had never played together in the 45 years of knowing about each other. We had never played in any uh, band or situation together. And so now, this is the first time we've played together. And it's worth the wait, let me tell you that. Yeah, I was wondering about that, if you might have been part of her band at the same time, because I know Freebo was with her too when Will was. Mm-hmm. And you guys go back a long way. That's right. Freebo and, and I, Freebo, actually, Freebo's gig before he went to Bonnie was with me in my college band, Edison Electric. We were at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, in uh, Philadelphia in the late 60s. Did one album for Atlantic, and then, like every other band those days, we broke up, you know. And he got Bonnie, and I went west and wound up with Van Morrison. Did you uh, know the Little Feet guys, or especially Billy Payne back Uh, then? Yes, um, particularly I met them when I lived in Marin County between 70 and 75, because I was working with Warner Brothers uh, quite a bit, Ted Templeman and... Lenny Waronker, um, and then uh, largely because I, of the work I was getting, I, I decided to move my family down to Los Angeles in 76, and then we got um, quite close to all of those guys. Uh, worked a lot with Nicolette Larson with 
Kenny Cradney and um, Paul and even Billy. Yeah, so we were all we were friends with all of them. Yeah, Lowell not so much because you know he was on his own wavelength and didn't see him so much, but did did run into him. He we we'd wave and grin at each other in the halls of Warner Brothers down there in Burbank. You know when we saw each other, but yeah, knew all those guys. Yeah. Great, great, great guys. So you've been performing with big shoes. I, I guess in the, in the beginning it was all little feet material, yeah. uh -huh. and I saw you guys do shows with like the horn section, uh -huh. and it was just great. Thank you. When did you guys decide that? Wait a minute, this band is so good, we might want to try the original route too. Well, um, it, I think it came together or came out organically. You know, we love playing little feet, but. Uh, not to say that it was ever one-dimensional, because how can you say that about music like that? But nonetheless, we realized that there was more musical uh, real estate we might want to cover that was similar, because we were all drawn by that influence, so we wanted to continue that. And, uh, you know, along with that, we decided, well, if we're going to record, we need to record something that's not Little Feet, because, A, how could you possibly be arrogant enough to think that you could do better than Little Feet if you recorded their stuff? And plus, you're paying royalties. You know, so it was like a non-starter. We can't do this. It's a, it's a great live thing, but we're, we got more music in us than this. So we realized that five of the seven or five and a half of the seven of us write. So we just started pulling things together and, you know, culling. And I like this one, that one maybe not. Oh, that's very cool. And uh, hey, I just brought this new one in. And, you know, so we compiled a list of songs that we thought were in the, in the genre, so to speak, but uh, were something that would be more of a voice for ourselves. Yeah. And that's how we got to where we are right now. And you had an earlier release a couple of years ago that you pretty much, I guess, sold at gigs. But yeah. the new one, Step On It, yes, is coming out next week. If I, it's if exactly not right. It is exactly right. Wherever fine CDs are sold, and uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about it. Uh, yeah, the first one um, was just an introduction, and it had a lot of covers or several blues covers, like. Um, um, Oh, what was the Albert King song we covered? Oh, uh, we we covered uh, "You Upsets Me, Baby," BB King, stuff like that. Yeah. And a couple of originals, but this one is all originals, and it's a lot more than just blues on there. There's some Memphis souls too, and there's actually we have the Memphis horns on a couple of tracks. Um, Charles Rose was kind enough to do the arrangements for us, and we'll supervise that. Will and Andy went down to the shows and recorded them, so we got it all going on. Some great ballads. Uh, Rick Huckabee, our lead singer, fabulous writer as well. And he and Kenneth Wright wrote a couple of songs on the album that are very good. So it's 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 something we're happy, we're all happy about and that we all feel proud to have done. Yeah. Yeah, and going forward, playing shows, is it going to be a mix of uh, Little Feet songs and originals or is it going to be all original? Uh, what we're thinking of now um, is to get our originals out there and then maybe encore with some, you know, if they like us enough, maybe we'll play two, three Little Feet songs just to show them where it started and, and give our proper tip of the hat, you know, to our our biggest influence. Yeah. yeah. So that's now, but let us go back a little bit. And you mentioned the Edison Electric Band uh -huh. that you had back in, in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Yeah. And we mentioned Freebo, he was a member of uh -huh. that too. Can you tell me a little bit about that band and about your start as a professional musician? Well, um, yeah, um, I was classically trained on the piano uh, from an early age. And so that was sort of my path until I got into high school. And of course, then the Beatles and the Stones came out, everything changed, right? Uh, and concurrently with that, I started at college. So. I was surrounded by every people who were changing, you know, and a lot of us were into music. So uh, one thing led to another, and um, I met Freebo through my roommate who was on the football team. Um, we started getting together, and uh, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I play a little piano. And I said, what do you do? He says, well, I play a little tuba and bass. And it was like, hey, maybe we ought to start something. And we recruited a uh, uh, guitar player and a drummer who were a year behind us at Penn. 
and a lead singer who was at uh, our year and uh, went out and started covering stone songs at the fraternities around Penn and stuff like that and working up stuff you know pretty soon it was Captain Beefheart and you know as our tastes broadened you know and we were certainly influenced by the whole Philadelphia Gamblin' Huff, uh, Joe Tarsia, uh, uh, that whole era, um, Spinners, Intruders, yeah, uh, even Bunny Sigler and uh, uh, all of those, all of those great Philadelphia singers. So that formed a little bit of our basis. We started writing, got to the attention of a local producer, um, and he took us to uh, Jack. Uh, Joel Dorn, I'm sorry, Joel Dorn, the great jazz producer who was doing work with Atlantic then, Eddie Henderson and stuff like that. And uh, they signed us. We made one record in 1970. And uh, it turned out to be more of a jam band kind of thing than we were anticipating, but that's the reaction people gave it, you know. It was was, a pretty unrealized effort, but it was our first effort. First thing I did commercially, you know, and then I split for the West Coast and started working as a hired gun, you know. So what made you move to the West Coast? Edison had gone to San Francisco in 1968 for the summer just to see what we could see. And we all fell in love with it. I mean, just how could you not, you know. Uh, So it was my idea to get back there someday. And it took me three years but I wanted to go back. And after Edison broke up, it seemed like a natural thing to do. So we moved cross country like the grapes of wrath with everything tied to the car and found a houseboat in San Rafael, you know, in Marin County and lived there for a while and stayed in Marin for six years and then moved to LA. And then to Nashville uh, in 93. So been here 25 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the early uh, musicians you you hooked up with in in LA or in in California. Uh, well, um, I kind of did a blind audition for Van Morrison, on the advice of uh, my college ex college girlfriend in New York, and nothing else. I mean, it was just like you you know you'd think I was nuts if you heard me that that was my plan today. But back then it seemed like as good a plan as any. Got on the audition with Van one on one at his house. He, s- he said, uh, you know where the studio is, don't you? I said, oh, yeah, sure. And, of course, I didn't know anything. He was referring to uh, the record plant in Sausalito. So I drove it from our little houseboat uh, and, and found out where it was in advance of the session. And I said, sure. Um, and he said, well, can you be there Friday at noon? And I said, well, let me look at my schedule. And of course, there was no schedule. And, and had there been, there'd be nothing on it because I just got there. And I uh, said, oh, yeah, I think I'm free. And he said, well, see you then. And I said, fine. So uh, Friday at noon at uh, <laughs> at uh, Sausalito Record Plant, uh, there's Van and the rest of the band, and we're uh, recording Tupelo Honey. Ted Templeman is a producer, and that was my first introduction to the West Coast and to Van and, and to Warner Brothers and to Ted, who was very helpful to me. Uh, you know, and using me on stuff. And uh, Connie Kay played drums on that session. Yes. And he, what a great drummer he was. He was a fabulous drummer. Um, you know, see, Van really uh, thinks of himself as a jazz singer and thinks of his voice maybe as an instrument, you know, another instrument, right? And if you think of it that way, it's obvious or, or it's easier to see that uh, he thought maybe Tupelo Honey was a jazz singer. And thus it needed a jazz drummer, right? So when the rest of us, uh, Ronnie Montrose on guitar Guitar. and Bill Church and bass and me were maybe rock and rollers, Connie was a jazzer, and that's what he brought to it. And that's what you hear on the recording. Uh, And, you know, pretty pretty well magic. He's used that progression in three or four other songs since then. But that was the template for all of them. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much a classic. And you did the same... Dominic's preview album. Well, actually, yes. Uh, As it turned out, you know, Van is nothing, uh, Andreas, if not prolific. I mean, the guy just, I mean, it just pours out of him. Sure did back then. Uh, And we recorded, often recorded more tracks than we needed for an album, but he was just, it was a 
exploding out of them, you know. So actually what happened is that a couple of those tracks that, or both, I think, of the tracks that I played on, on St. Dominic's were uh, left over from Tupelo Honey. didn't make the original cut and they were used on St. Dominic's, which was the subsequent album. But yeah, same session. Okay. Did mm -hmm. you hit the road with him too after that session or was that just a studio collaboration? Originally it was just a studio collaboration. We did a couple of gigs around town. During that period in his life, he hadn't um, come to terms with the uh, facing an audience every night like he has for the last 25 years. Uh, and it was often dependent on the mood he picked up from them, you know, as to whether he, which, which van you might want to see that night. And I remember we did this one gig because Ronnie particularly, but all of us were saying, man, this is a great band. Let's go do some gigs. Somebody, I don't know who, booked a gig in, e in the East Bay of San Francisco. If you're familiar with it, it's, it can be a little rough. And we went to this uh, bar. Uh, we were booked in this bar called Frenchies, and it was, it turns out it was a reds and wine bar, you know, pills and wine. And uh, so we got there, and he was so uh, put off by the atmosphere, which was a, a little dark, you know, that he did the whole show with his back to the audience. Whole show looking at the drummer. Now, where most people's reaction would have been, what an idiot, or who, you know, who is this? It only added to his mystique because people were so blown away that this guy wouldn't even look at him, you know, and did the whole show. But if you closed your eyes, you could hear him singing, you know, from the roots of his toes. So he wasn't skimping, he just wasn't looking. And, uh, but it just blew people's minds that he was able to do that. And so in, it, rather than putting him down, it sort of raised him up. People were talking about, man, did you see that show he did? And he didn't even face the audience. It's unbelievable. So he'd do things like that. But yeah, so uh, it was sporadic. And then um, I had heard through the grapevine that Dave Mason was recruiting a keyboard player and of course, when you say Dave Mason, you say uh, traffic, and when you say traffic, you say Steve Winwood, and when you say Steve Winwood, I'm all over it because Steve is still a hero to me, even though he's still younger than me. How did that work? I don't understand. <laughs> he started out real young. Oh, didn't he ever? Davis. Yeah. yeah, 16 when he did I'm a Man. Yeah, but yes, so uh, I had known all of that traffic stuff because I just adored and still do Steve Winwood. So when they asked me to come down and audition, it was like, I got this, and I did. And I toured for Dave for two and a half years, three years, and did three albums with him. He's such a great songwriter, too. I mean, oh, man. You don't know like and You know that first right album? And all that stuff, oh, yeah. it's all on there. Oh, yeah. And uh, that first album, Alone Together, just one hit after another. Yeah. He, and he always had real muscular bands, too, real... Everybody could play. His uh, foil for many years uh, when I was in the band and after was uh, Jimmy Krieger, uh, the guitar player from uh, Wisconsin, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, who uh, wrote uh, We Just Disagree, if you remember that other hit that he had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, great, great players all the time. Yeah. And some fun adventures we had. Yeah. And going back to Van Morrison, your association with him didn't stop then, though. You've done work with him more recently, too. Yeah. Um, well, Van's one of those people who, I guess, has a big, fat uh, mental Rolodex because, you know, after a while, you get around to the <laughs> front of the thing and he calls you again. So um, I, I guess I appeared on um, three albums with him. I, he called me back after I moved to L.A., called me back in 78 to work on an album called Into the Music in Marin County, and we did that, I believe, at the record plant in Sausalito as well. And then in 76, before I left for Cal uh, for Los Angeles, we went into uh, the record plant and did something that was never released, a whole album's worth of stuff, or material, I don't know if it was an album, but enough material for an album. Uh, I remember he was playing sax 
like a maniac at the time. That was his, you know, he focuses. He'll play guitar for a couple of months. He'll play harp for a couple of months. He'll play sax, you know, he goes around. So this was one of his sax periods, and we recorded a lot. It never came out. And then when uh, Philosopher's Stone came out in, I think, 2004, uh, Bonnie, uh, no, maybe 1994, I was on the road, I guess, with Bonnie, and Hutch Hutchinson came up to me. He said, oh, you're out on a new Van Morrison album. It's brilliant. And I said, well, you're, you're crazy, because I haven't played with Van for 20 years, you know, uh, 16 years. And no, he said, no, just go get this album. So we were at uh, Caesars in Vegas. I went to, um, you know, Best Buy or whatever. That, and there it was. And there were five tracks that I'd played on, on Philosopher's Stone. And I went, what the? I opened it up and saw the credits. And I was like, oh, this is the stuff we did in 1976. And he has volumes, you know, of material to choose from. So he just went through the files and picked them out. And like that, so fortunately again. And then the last time I played with him, I was I toured Europe in 2005 for five months. And that was the last time I was with him. Yeah, so uh, we left it off at, with you being in, in Dave Mason's band. Yeah. Did you get Bonnie Raitt's gig after that, or how did that evolve? Well, interestingly enough, I'd been knowing Bonnie all along because she and Edison Electric, my college band, shared a manager. And that's someone I'm, I bet you know, and that's Dick Waterman. Yeah. You know Dick? Not personally. Well, you know who, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, wonderful manager. And at the time that he met Bonnie, uh, he, you know, he started out as a um, sports reporter. And he was from the University of Massachusetts. And then he went up to Cambridge and started booking uh, Club 47 with uh, Jim Rooney, right down here. And uh, he managed uh, Sunhouse, Mississippi John Hurt, and Sippy Wallace. And Bonnie was a Cliffy. She was a Radcliffe girl, you know, a Harvard female school at that time. They weren't uh, co-ed. And she started hanging out at the Folkies because that was kind of where she was coming from. Met Dick. He turned her on to Sippy Wallace and, and all these other guys playing slide guitar and, and was like, you know, she, her eyes w way open. She loved that. So with the determination that she brings to everything that she ever does, she started learning how to play slide guitar. And pretty soon she was the only woman who played slide, acoustic slide guitar. So um, Dick managed us and managed her, and uh, we were sort of like both at the be very beginning of our careers at the time. And um, after Edison broke up, and while I was with Dave Mason, we had the two-week hiatus, and Bonnie called uh, three of the four of us in Edison, minus the drummer, up to Bearsville to record, to be the core band for her record, Give It Up. So that's the first time I recorded with her. That was 1972, right? And then she covered, I wrote a couple of songs that Freebo got to her for me, very sweet of him. And she recorded, and one was on the record Home Plate in 75, I think called uh, Walked Out the Front Door. And we cover this on um, Big Shoes record, on this new record, Step On It. Um, and in 1977, she put out a, a LP called Sweet Forgiveness. Uh, that was the one that had Runaway yeah. as the single on it, Del Shannon song. And um, I had a song on there that I wrote myself called Two Lives. And she did two of those songs. And then in 90, she invited me back on the road to play in the band uh, that included uh, George Marinelli, uh, whom you know very well, um, Ricky, Katar, Hutch, Hutchinson, and Deborah Dobkin and Glenn Clark. Right, Deborah on percussion and Glenn on. Yeah, and that road test is live for yes, road is so good. Isn't that, isn't that a good record? And I there mean, are all these great people guesting on it. Oh too. my God, that was so wonderful. That was. That was extraordinary time, you know. That was 94, 95. And then she invited me back for a couple of gigs in 98 on the road in the West Coast. So we stay in touch, you know. We, we see each other or say hi every once a year or something like that. Yeah, and mm. you mentioned your, your songwriting. How did your songwriting evolve? You're mainly known as a, as a piano keyboard uh -huh. player, uh -huh. but you had cuts early on with Bonnie. 
Uh, well, I had did uh, uh, Bonnie and uh, a couple of other people. It, sur it occurred to me, well, you know, I had to write for Edison Electric. And first of all, we kind of had to find out what the hell kind of band we wanted to be. And we were young, and but we were just getting our influences together. But we were, you know, we liked R&B. We liked Motown. We liked Philly. We liked funk, you know. So we tried to, as in as much as we were able at a young age, to try and capture some of that. So had to write. And uh, both the drummer and the lead singer were both excellent lyric writers. Uh, and Febo contributed a couple of songs, too. So we all wrote. And um, that's when I started. And uh, I was very fortunate to be introduced to a guy named Graham Gouldman when I had just gotten out of college. And Graham Gouldman uh, co-founded 10CC, the English group. Mm -hmm. And before that, he was an independent, successful young songwriter. The first song he ever got recorded was, uh, uh, what's the yard? It's not For Your Love, but uh, Heart Full of Soul. Yeah. First song. For Your Love was the second song. The third and fourth songs he got recorded, Bus Stop and Look Through Any Window. Right? So that's how he started his career. And we've been friends since 1969. And he and his manager, Harvey Lisberg, have been dear, dear friends to me. So early on I started thinking, you know, there's more to this than just playing. I mean, you know, if you write something, you see a little mailbox money. And I always, I always, enjoyed, I always enjoyed the process. Yeah, uh, of, of, what's the word, prosody, that is the marriage of music and words? Yeah. You know, it's like a puzzle. I really, really admired great uh, lyricists for that reason, being, being as that's where I struggle. Music's not so hard for me, but the, the lyrics are always a bit difficult. Is the music where a lot of your songs start? I would have to say, yeah in terms of something that I hum to myself or sing to myself that I think has potential and I'll go to the piano or keep it in my head for you know, as long as I can until I can get to a piano and say, where is this going? You know, maybe notate it if it's something that I want to come back to. Yeah, yeah. So when you got off the road with Bonnie the first time, what did you do next? I was in L.A. by that time. I met Jackson Brown. He was just completing the Pretender album, looking for a band to go out. And I went out with him all through 1976 and half of 1977 on the road. And that was just after he lost his wife, Phyllis, and had two young boys, you know, both under five, to bring up. It was a pretty heavy time. He's a remarkable man. He's an old soul by anybody's measurement. And you know, his dad was Django Reinhardt's pianist. I didn't know did that. Did you know that? No, I did not. Yes, it's true. So he comes by, you know, honest. Although where you can get a 19-year-old to write something like Take It Easy is beyond me. But anyway, that's, it. that's one of his gifts. He's a real prince. I worked for Olivia Newton-John. I was her... Um, uh, musical director on her uh, world tour of uh, Totally Hot when she sort of came out of the I Honestly Love You period and got a little more aggressive. She recorded in this room too. Did she? She did the Don't Stop Believing album here. <sighs> Olivia is a, just a regular gal. She is so cool. Everything, loved everything about her. Fun, funny, classy, you know, really good. I saw her now listen, this is the first time she'd been back to Australia since she emigrated. This was 78, right? So it was a big deal. And so she had an opening act. And do you know the African singer Labby Sifri? Yeah. He was her opening act in Australia. Now mind you, Australia is a fabulous place. But uh, the question with the aboriginals and the natives is not resolved, right? So... On many stops, or several anyway, at Sydney certainly, he would sing I Honestly Love You with her. And there was some sub-Rosa little tension in the crowd, you know? And especially, when they finished the song, she'd take him by the hand and walk out to the edge of the stage and just stand there, smiling. Not waving, not talking, not moving, 
just holding his hand and, and smiling. And almost invariably, it was reluctant. But what would happen was when people would, you know, the volume would go down, there'd be a little bit of an awkward silence, and it would start to come up again. And pretty soon, the damn place, they were on their feet, you know, because they understood what she was doing. And I, I never forgot that, you know. She didn't even have to say anything. And there it was. There was and she said everything she had to say. And it was beautiful. Oh, unbelievable. Worked with her, uh, went over to uh, England, worked with Graham Goulwin on the last 10cc as a band album, 10 out of 10, which at that point was him and Eric Stewart only. Laurel Cream and Kevin Golly had left years ago. And even Eric and Graham, Graham was doing his half in their studio in, outside of uh, Manchester, and uh, Eric was doing his half in their studio outside of London, so they didn't even, you know. So it was about a part to still be called a band as you could get it. And then, um, oh, I messed around for a few years in the 80s, and um, let's see, came back with uh, Rita Coolidge in 90, and oh, Edgar Winter first, and then, uh, no, Rita Coolidge for about a year, and then Edgar Winter for about a year. And then I got married to my darling wife, Peggy, and uh, we started coming out here and thinking, you know, this is a lot better than L.A. in terms of affordability and seasons. I grew up on the East Coast, so seasons are kind of something I remember, rather fond of, you know. So we came out here in 93 and never looked back. And I guess just slightly before that, you played on a Taj Mahal album that I love. Oh yeah, like, like never, never before. before. Yeah. yeah, that on private records. That was a uh, boutique label, and uh, oh yeah, my friend Skip Dr Drinkwater was one of the producers on that. It was a great record. It had a John Martin song and a couple other great songs. I had two songs on that album that I co-written. Yeah, I'd played with Taj, known him in L.A., run into him, and of course with Bonnie's Association. There was always some place where they were playing on the same bill, so we got to say hi, and I sat in with her on occasion. So we knew each other, and I always admired his work and what a historian he was, you know, and, yeah. and a teller of tales. But, you know, I mean, boy, Taj can tell you who played bass on a Ruth Brown session in 1954. I would really like to follow him around with a tape recorder for about three months. I think it's, you know, he's got a lot to impart. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be maybe one of the ones who captured it, but that's something for another day. But yes, love Taj. So uh, when this opportunity came up, I said, I'm a, I am there, there. And then we took him on tour uh, through the States, six weeks, and then another four weeks in Europe. And it was great. Full band, two keyboards, setups. Each of us had two keyboards, you know, doing horns and all that. We, you know, we tried to do as much of the album as possible. Yeah. Two guitar players slide, killer, killer rhythm section from Philadelphia. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and yeah. then you moved here. Was was Leroy Purnell one of the early collaborators here? Um, well, you know, oddly enough, uh, six months after I got here, uh, we got here, my wife and I, Bo it was when Bonnie asked me to go out. So my first few years, I was kind of out with her. But yes, um, uh, Leroy's kind of my neighbor down the street in Westmead, and um, so we'd see each other around, and we started playing together, and again, I love his story, you know, he's a historian, you know, his dad's really close friend was Bob Wills, and at Leroy growing up, uh, and his brother Rob Roy used to call him Uncle Bob, because that's all, how often he was around the house, and Leroy's first gig was at eight years old, literally standing on a soapbox, singing at a song at a Bob Wills show, so, you know, I love that, and I love his playing, He's a funny guy, we, so we've toured together as well. And Leroy led to Delbert, you know, that whole crew, Gary Nicholson, all those people, so, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's another project you did here in Nashville, the Joyride Project. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, thank you for remembering that. Um, two dear friends of mine, uh, Scott Chambers, uh, bass player extraordinaire. He used to be in Jack Mack and the Heart Attack back in L.A., um, and uh, lead singer, co-writer, fabulous vocalist, uh, and a great friend, C.C. Uh, Miller. We just loved that jump jazz of the 30s and 40s. And we wanted to do something that was sort of like 
quick and guerrilla and didn't have to need to be a whole set up and like 14 musicians trying to get places and stuff. So he said, let's just do a trio, piano, bass, and vocals. And we'll all sing background vocals too. And we'll make it, you know, we did a lot of uh, uh, Nat Cole, uh, Sweet Lorraine, Are You For It, kind of stuff like that. Uh, a lot of early Ray Charles, um, a lot of Johnny Mercer, all of that stuff. We we love that era, and we put out a self-financed record um, in 2015, I, I think, called Are You For It, which was the name of the song we covered of Nat Coles that was uh, his first single in 1935, I believe. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. those, we're, we're scattered now because CeCe has moved to Rockport, Texas, and uh, Scott has gone back to being a... Uh, real estate developer here in Nashville. It's a <laughs> good he's, place to be for yeah, real Oh, boy, he's, I think he's done pretty well, but he sure is still a mean bass player and a very sweet guy. We've known each other. We've all known each other a long time, so it was a labor of love, and we had a hoot doing it. You know? I'd like to do it one more time. We've got, yeah. uh, well, there's certainly enough songs. The golden era. You know? Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned, mentioned Delbert and, and all that. Did you meet Andy Peake? through the Delbert connection because I know he worked with him for mm -hmm. a short while too. Yeah. Um, oddly enough, I met Andy, one of the first people I met, uh, players I met when I first came to town um, 25 years ago. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was on a Myla Mason gig. Uh, uh, Dino Zimmerman was in the band, the guitar player who was wonderful used to work at Malico yeah. a long time and died three or four years ago. Um, and Donnie Wynn, um, who I also met, who worked with Deborah Allen, who I first worked with uh, in 93. But yeah, I think, I think I met Andy on a, you know, on a road gig somewhere. Yeah. And uh, we circulated for a while and then we're playing little pickup I kept running into him, you know, and by 95, I was using him on demos, and I, you know, I liked the way he played, and so we've been friends, really, since all the time I've been here, yeah, ups and downs, watched his daughter grow up, and now she's hitting it in New York and L.A. as a songwriter, Maggie Peak, great, yeah. Yeah, somebody else you've been working with occasionally that is a mutual friend of ours too. Is uh, John Tiven? The oh, producer. I love John. Yeah. And you ended up on a few records that he he produced. How how did you meet? You him? know, that's a that's a good question. I want to say it was something like the Bluebird, but it might have been something more personal, like he had me over to the house to record or something on one of his projects. Um, I know there was some involvement with Cropper that we were doing, and that might have been it. But. Uh, in uh, whoa, maybe 2000 or 2002, John put a uh, review, I guess you could call it that, an R&B review together behind uh, Ellis Hooks yep. and took us to the Perugia. Peretta, yeah, the Peretta Soul Festival. Well, actually, it wasn't Peretta. It was Perugia. Okay. You know, Peretta's down the road, but yeah. yeah. Uh, this was the Perugia Jazz Festival, uh, and we were there for two weeks in a hotel, played our little gigs, Unfortunately, we couldn't see a lot of the headliners, and they, I'm talking about like Keith Jarrett and Dion Warwick, and you know, big. They were in soccer field, you know, they had one of those big portable inflatable stages. But we played like in the town squares and stuff, but it was usually around like noon and nine o'clock at night, so we never got to see any of the headliners, but it was a fabulous time. And um, June L. Mosser went with us, and uh, Patty Russo, who used to be. Uh, Meatloaf's female foil on stage. Yeah. Uh, had a great time. Was Sir McRice on, on that tour too? Wh the who? guy who wrote Mustang Sally, Sir oh, McRice. Oh, yeah, Sir McRice. Yes, yes, he was. I, I went. We backed him up. And I Cadillac went, assembly line. And, mm -hmm. and yeah. I went to see you guys perform at the Pareto Soul Festival oh. before I moved here. Oh, my God. And Billy Block was the drummer. Yes. And. Uh, you're yeah. a, you're absolutely right. So uh, that was great. That's when I met John. I met Wayne Jackson yes. at, that, at that same festival. That's right. He was on horns. He and 
Was it Andrew? Uh, that was after Andrew retired. That, that's right. That's right. But the, he was there. Before he was sick, but we, after he retired. Right. Yes, I remember that very well. Yeah, unbelievable. See? Yeah. You also worked with Lyle Lovett. I did. Uh, and I have Matt Rawlings to thank for that. Um, when I got to town, I didn't know very many people. Actually, the people who brought me to town in terms of encouraging me were Ken Vassie and his wife, Carol. And if you remember, Ken was um, the second lead singer, if you want to say that, in the first edition behind Kenny Rogers. Yeah. Had the beautiful high tenor voice. Carol was his wife. And um, I knew the Labounties, uh, Bill and Becky, Becky Foster, his wife. And so I called up Becky one day uh, after I'd sort of got been here a month and figured out, oh, well, Matt Rawlings is the guy I need to talk to, <laughs> you know. And I called up Becky and I said, Becky, do you know Matt? And she said, of course. I said, would you mind brokering a meeting between him and me? And she was kind enough to do it. And at the time, he was living over on Walnut off of uh, Woodmont. And I caught him one morning, and he was kind of like running around. He said, oh, geez, I got my I got a for sale sign in the front yard. I've been thinking about selling a house, but I really haven't thought about it. I haven't looked at anything else. And now this morning, my broker calls me and says, hey, you got your offer. So I don't know what to do. I said, well, I got an idea. There's a house across the street from me in Westmead that has a basement studio in it of, you know, 1,500 square feet. He came over, looked at it, bought it. So he was my neighbor for, I don't know, eight years or so before he moved to L.A. And so in 96, he had enough to do in the studio and that sort of thing that uh, Lyle asked him to go out on the yearly tour. And he was very generous in giving it to me and suggesting me. So Lyle had me out... My audition was the Tonight Show, and I played. They flew me out to play the One-Eyed Fiona, and flew me back, and then called me a day later and said, "Okay, you got it." And I went out on the uh, Road to Ensenada tour in the summer and fall of '96. That was a quite an experience. Lyle's amazing cat. What was Charles Ross and Harvey Thompson in the band at that time? They were indeed, and. Um, John on on uh, John Hagen, yeah, and Andrea Zahn, which is where I first got to know Andrea, and the singers, you know, uh, Pee Wee and Sir Harry, Sweet Pea, yeah. Sweet Pea and uh, Sir Harry and Willie Green and Francine Reed, yeah. So that was that was a pretty funny bus, yeah. I love that music and Ray Herndon, of course, on guitar. Yeah. yeah. What was Russ Kunkel the drummer at that time? No, it was um, Dan uh, Dan. Can't remember his last name, but wonderful guy. Quiet, but just right there. And, oh, and Victor Krauss on bass. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he's still with him, too. Victor. Monster. You know, uh, Victor and, and Allison and Andrea Zahn all grew up in Champaign-Urbana. Okay. Right? And Andrea was like a few years behind Victor and, and Andrea, so she won all the fiddle contests after Andrea did. Right? And her father, uh, 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 after um, Allison did. And um, Andrea's father was also a music educator in the, in the I guess, university system there. Okay. So they're similar, came from similar backgrounds. Yeah. One thing I love about, the, you know, the large band shows is, like, each player, you know, gets the spotlight. And to me, it's like, at least just watching the show, Lyle is such a great band leader or such a great master of of what's happening on stage can you elaborate a little bit on his role in that band oh um not only is he a great band leader but if you'll notice i think you'll agree that his persona comes off as uh as very self-deprecating with uh, painfully so in some instances and it's sort of like almost a light motif, if you will, all right, through the thing, you know. And it's very effective, right, because he, he's always being downtrodden. He's like Francine is always calling him out for something or somebody else is, you know, dumping on his parade. But that calculation is scripted within an inch of its life every night. And it works, but it's... it's uh, it's very deceptive because you think 
like nothing's happening or there's no there there you know because he's not very forceful and he's even when he sings sometimes he's a little bit tentative you know but that all works to his advantage and he has got it down to a science timing everything yeah and i love how he features different players it it brings the band alive instead of being one block front of people you know personalities emerge it's a wonderful way to keep the uh, interest up you know and then the songs are just great i mean his amalgam of his particular lyric take with the the texas forms that he uses is genius in my estimation genius and nobody does it better yeah so we're getting towards the end of oh, the program boy time flies when you're having it sure fun. does but do you feel like we miss talking about something that's dear to your heart or a main collaborator we missed um no but i would like to play a song if we have time i'd love for you to i'm talking about main collaborators and one of them has been charles john corto do you know charles i don't wow my goodness you might want to meet him interesting fellow He's a poet and a psychic. Um, he wrote uh, Mama Knows the Highway for uh, Hal Ketchum. He wrote Geronimo's Cadillac for Michael Martin Murphy and a hundred other lesser-known songs. But he has a way with words. See what you think. This is called Even the Night's Got the Blues. Me and Charles. There's a train coming in Made of rain and gin Train going by like a friend There's a drift in the air God knows where Someplace my heart has been There's a tomcat howling on a neighbor's roof. Well, I believe him 100 proof. Cause I was already right in the mood. Even the night's got the No. 
Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you, Andres. Thank you for having me today. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for being here and uh, Step On It, the new Big Shoes album is coming out next week. Yes. Uh, it's already gotten great reviews. Yeah. I, I scanned the internet earlier today, and it's just every review is just stellar, and they embraced the musicianship, obviously. Oh, uh, yeah, I, we're just uh, delighted and stunned at the same time to have this kind of recognition you know at this stage of the game but it's so much fun and uh we're grateful to the fans and the, uh, the who are enthusiastic the listeners encourage you to go get the album and uh come out and see us on march 28th at uh third and lindsley for our cd release party all right i will be there for sure Great. and uh i hope we get to collaborate again in the future me too look forward to it all right thanks for being my guest today thank you andreas this was the 27th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's legendary creative workshop recording studio in the Berry Hill neighborhood of Nashville. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. 